1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello and welcome to the Economic and Business History Channel. I am Paula de la Cruz Fernandez and I am your host today. I am a historian of gender and business and I am also a host and editor in the New Books Network in Español, which I encourage you to listen to, share with your peers and also become a host if you'd like to do interviews in Spanish. My guest today is Dr. Tracy Deutsch. Tracy Deutsch is a history professor at the University of Minnesota. She teaches, researches, and writes about gender and women's history, the history of capitalism, critical food studies, and modern US history. She has published essays on the uses of women's history and women's labor in contemporary local food discourses. I recommend her chapter, Home Cooking, women's place and women's history in local food discourse in the book Food Fights, How the Past Matters in Contemporary Food Debates, published in 2019. Her current research, which I hope he, uh, she can uh, talk about it after, later, uses Julia Child's biography to study the emergence of food as a crucial object in middle class life in the mid 20th century UNI- United States. She is also pursuing research on the history of the abstraction of consumer demand in economic thought. Tracy Deutsch studies the intersection between gender and capitalism, and she has recently also published a wonderful chapter entitled um, Capitalism in the 20th and 21st Centuries, uh, which is co-authored with Nan Stand in the Companion to American Women's History, published by Wiley in 2021. The book that we are introducing today is Building Our Housewives Paradise, Gender, Politics, and American grocery stores in the 20th century. This is not a new book. It was published in 2010, but it is one that I think deserves to be highlighted, especially within the most recent uh, debates and studies on gender and business. Building a Housewife's Paradise studies the emergence of supermarkets in the urban, urban United States by focusing on the case of Chicago. The book argues that this history, the birth and growth of large and standardized uh, grocery stores or supermarkets is undetectable from the social, cultural and economic identities and gender contexts of food and household uh, provision and systems. Her analysis goes back to the beginning of the 20th century, through uh, post World War II. Hello, Tracy, and welcome to the Economic and Business History Channel of the New Books Network. Hello, Paula. It's great to be here. Please tell us about yourself and how you became a historian of food, gender, and capitalism. Sure. Um, so. It's actually,
1: the last two things are actually pretty straightforward. I came to graduate school committed to studying gender and women's history. Um, that was what motivated me to become a historian. And then I was lucky enough to take a seminar with um, Colleen Dunlavey um, in American business history. And that really persuaded me that I could use what I knew about gender and power to also understand business. Um, I was just very lucky to be nurtured by a community of students and faculty who really helped me to see gender as a structural factor in economies, Um, and just as important, I want to say, who helped me to develop an identity as someone who did both gender history and the history of capitalism. I think there are actually a lot of scholars whose work touches on both fields, um, and I learned how to kind of claim interventions into both fields. I also owe a debt to um, the community of business historians for making me a food scholar. Um, I had always resisted seeing myself as a food scholar and there weren't a lot of food historians when I was writing my dissertation, but I was invited to a food history conference, one of the first ones at the Hagley, um, in which people expressed some interest in my work. And that was really a key moment in my becoming a food scholar. Even then, it took many years and many other conversations with very generous colleagues for me to see food as a historical object in and of itself. But now it's at the center of my work.
0: So what inspired you to write Building a Housewife's Paradise? I was driven by
1: two really different sources of inspiration. One was an intellectual puzzle, which was how to understand... The political importance of consumption during the crucial years of the 1920s, 1930s, and 1940s. Many scholars um, correctly have argued that this was when the idea of a consumer citizen emerged in policy and when economists and policymakers began paying attention to consumption as a really key category of economic health and a really key site of regulation. And I agree with all of that. But I approach the question somewhat differently because I wanted to see how consumption as a process actually worked. How was it that people's provisioning and purchasing was able to be so smoothly integrated into policymaking, into cultural ideals about women and also about American identity, and into economic um, forecasting. So the book was really my way of understanding how women's shopping was reframed and disciplined um, as it took on structural significance to the state and to large corporations? So that's one, that was kind of an intellectual question that I had. The second um, related inspiration was more personal. Um, I was inspired by my own experience of shopping when I grew up. Every Saturday morning of my childhood, my mother took my grandmother grocery shopping. And when I was very lucky and I promised not to ask for too many things, I got to go with. Um, And those moments seemed to me then, as they do now, um, really productive in ways that conventional studies of retail didn't capture. Um, They were about bonding. They were about social and religious identities. They were about our our identities as mothers and daughters. Um, The grocery stores, when we went, felt really important and full of choices and contingencies that constructed social identities, um, and so for me, the work I kept that experience in my head as I wrote this, the dissertation, and then the book.
0: Yeah, I think that is wonderful. Making making something that seems so routine uh, and so so ordinary, which is just you know getting food. Uh, brought to your house so that you can actually feed your family, um, how you put it, how you make it um, work. I mean, how you make it um, and explain that that is work. That takes time, takes planning, takes, um, you know, two or three hours of your Saturday. (laughs) So it it kind of just also be thought as as just plainly consumption or just uh, maybe even leisure. Right, right. Which, and that's... um... To me, that's been one of the things I learned from this project
1: was that calling food shopping work allows scholars to bring the whole panoply of really sophisticated, nuanced frameworks to consumption that we usually apply to work. So for instance, we would never say that somebody's job was, or we would probably not say that their job was the thing that they most wanted to do, right? That it fulfilled their desire, That it was and that fulfilling their desire was the reason that people did wage work. Um, We understand work in much more complicated ways. And I think we can also understand consumption in more complicated ways when we realize that part of consumption is about intentional effort and tasks and work.
0: Exactly. And that ties with really, uh, my next question, which is domesticity. How, you know, all those different, uh, parts of, uh, that are part of the ideology of domesticity can be also thought as, as, as that, as work. Um, so by way of telling us about the title of the book, which I think is, uh, very provocative, you know, what, what, what is a housewife's paradise, um, over time? Uh, can you provide that a brief overview of this ideology of domesticity in the US at the turn of the 20th century and what food procurement meant for households um, at this time. And, and then at the end of the interview, perhaps we can go how what it meant uh, after World War II. And um, so what I want to ask you is how can researchers studying grocery stores uh can learn also about women's worlds uh, food systems and female identities as consumers and producers um within this business uh of food and food systems sure i'll try to get to all of that so
1: (laughs) the title of the book is actually um an adaptation of a quote that I use to open the book um, in 1932, when Chicago was just in the depth of the depression, the executive of a chain grocery store described uh, some newly remodeled stores as a housewife's paradise. Those were his words. And the book really tells the process through which retailers decided that um, nice looking, well-lit self-serve um, upgraded stores were counted as a housewife's paradise, that that's what women really wanted. And in so doing, um, and I think this gets at your question a little bit, they were also deciding what it meant to be a housewife, what the indicators were of being a normative woman. So in other words, if you weren't satisfied by that kind of shopping experience, if that store didn't give you everything you wanted it called into question your status as a normative housewife, right? What are you if you're shopping in a housewife's paradise, but it doesn't feel like paradise to you? Um, What's striking, and I think really the trajectory of the narrative in the book, is that there came to be one vision of what food shopping should look like and one vision of what pleased women as a category.
0: I think that is super interesting because as far as I I understand from your book, Also, it wasn't women. I mean, women did not become the sellers. And that is interesting because, you know, for example, in the business of sewing, I see the women becoming, you know, real makers of these stores, like, you know, by by sewing uh, things to to display and things like that. How come women, uh, you know, don't become, or we don't see them uh, as, you know, as perhaps proprietors of office stores.
1: So that's a really interesting question. And I don't talk about that very much in the book itself. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, women were not the owners of large chain supermarkets, by and large. Um, they might have been m- in marketing. There were certainly jobs for women as home economists in some very large chain stores. And they might have been cashiers or checkers, um, but they were not the people who owned the stores. The places where women show up as proprietors, as in, I'm sure in your studies, are of much smaller enterprises. So there were women proprietors of small stores, um, but they didn't, as was true of most large business in certainly for most of the 20th century, women weren't the visible leaders.
0: Tell us a bit more about your methodology and approach. Uh, What sort of sources take the historian to understand this intersection between gender politics and business? And what are your windows to understanding what the consumer wants and how their expressions of these needs have an impact in larger uh, developments and contexts uh, such as retail transformation? What does it mean to employ a feminist approach when studying food systems? Um, Those are great and hard questions.
1: (laughs) So um, I, the short answer though, is that I think that once you see gender as having a structural impact on politics and business, then almost any source that you use to understand business can be used to understand gender and politics. Um, for instance, I found trade journals to be a really great source um, because retailers often spoke with really surprising candidness about how they shaped their stores to suit gendered ideals about they conveyed their um, both their the stereotypes of women that drove business but also everyday encounters that were sources of friction to those stereotypes that kind of surprised them um I also but I also used sources that, um, might seem a little bit more removed from the realm of gender, like I looked a lot at annual reports and even things like sales tax ordinances and regulations. Um, the important thing is being willing to imagine and really feel what that information is actually telling you. So for instance, debates about sales tax laws can really conveyed an awful lot about which goods were considered necessities. For instance, why would you tax food Many states didn't, although the state that I studied did. Um, And also the ways that retailers were expected to collect the tax and to exert authority over customers. So reading those um, really kind of in the weeds aspects of regulations and policy um, and fiscal management really um, told me a lot about the ways that grocers were expected to assert authority over customers
0: in the collection of the tax. Yeah, that's so interesting. I um, trade journals came to me also in a very kind of surprising way. I I did not I had not looked at them, and then one day, well, not one day, but after being at this at the business history uh, doctoral colloquium, I uh, some Pamela Laird told me about trade dur- journals, and I I went to Hagley and I. These were so uh, important and so interesting after, you know, I started reading them to, to my analysis as well. They let a column for, for the women <laughs> to oh, okay. to express themselves also in terms of, you know, how, how they wanted uh, the machines to, to perform and things like that. But so what were your main archives?
1: So I looked at, um, a, like I said, a lot of trade journals, uh, Chain store age was a big one, progressive grocer. Um, I also looked at journals and archives that where women's voices were more accessible to me. Um, one of the most one of the biggest surprises of the project were was the availability of consumer cooperatives archives, which I hadn't anticipated when I started the project. But um, even very small consumer co-ops, often had a sense of themselves as important and they saved minutes and newsletters and letters and um, advertisements, all kinds of correspondence or all kinds of documents that really, in which women were speaking pretty openly about um, what they wanted the store to do, what their frustration was with the store. Um, and, And that really opened the window for me onto... Um the possibilities for food selling and food shopping, particularly in the 1930s and the 1940s, I started to look at organized movements of consumers. Again, those were often archives in which women's voices were much more were much louder and more explicit. Um, and both white women and a lot of African-American women organized in this time period around consumption. Um, sometimes with aims that were about other issues right they were trying to call attention to unfair labor practices for instance but sometimes they were also demanding changes in the process of selling itself
0: and those were also turned out to be great sources for me great following the chronology of your book how how did women or what was the ch- transformation at the in the early 1900s um, about acquiring food how? How did you know stores look like? Um, perhaps you you may provide like an example of, that you have plenty of you in your book about a chain store. Um, where did f- food come from? I mean, what was the chain from you know the farm to to Chicago? Let's say, um, how did the stores display their supplies so that it was perhaps. Um, useful for the person providing uh, the stores, I mean, the food, sorry, the uh, produce, uh, but also for the women women and, and, and customers to see? Um, how did, in this early time, how did retailers call for attention, for women's attention in, in public markets as well as chain stores, which you both explain in the book?
1: Yeah, so... One thing I think that's important to understand about food retail in this early period is that there were really a lot of different sources of food. Um, people got food from grocery stores, which were typically quite small. Um, they also got food from peddlers, who brought both fresh and processed food through neighborhoods. Um, and then they also got food through small, more specialized stores, butchers, um, produce stores or stands, um, dairy stores, and also from going to public markets. Chicago, like a lot of cities, had um mark not only one central public market, but many neighborhood markets where people on particular days of the week could go and get foods, sometimes not usually straight from farmers, but very often from um resellers who had bought right from farmers. So it was a really um complicated food system, I would say, that meant that there were um, many sources of food, even in um, pretty poor and working class neighborhoods. One of the points I make in the book is that um, the poorest neighborhoods that now have been called food deserts um, were at the time had some of the richest sources of food, um, just because there were so many different systems for selling. So I think that's helpful in just understanding the landscape of food in the early 1900s. Um, food stores themselves were often, like I said, relatively small. Um, they were often, although not always, what we would call service stores in that uh, consumers told the, worked with a clerk or a grocer to get access to goods. A lot of goods were stored behind the counter and people didn't have access to those goods themselves. Um, advertising tended not to be based on price only, but also people, at least stores often got people's attention by simply because they were so close by, right? It was a lot about location and proximity in public markets and other places. Um, it was still based on personal interaction. Um, some of which could be, I mean, according to reports was, it was pretty loud, <laughs> People tried to get customers' attention by, um, through the calling out to them, by allowing them to sample goods. Um, In fact, there were regulations in Chicago and a lot of cities um, to stifle peddlers because um, middle class, well, really urban reformers thought that the noise pollution from peddlers was just um, distracting and upsetting. So food marketing, you know, um, was a much more sensory experience.
0: <laughs> right. And what about, so the prices, um, I'm assuming that the growth of chain stores also means the uh, standardization of prices. But would would these peddlers and, you know, and public markets be, in a way, were they open to customers? Um you know, negotiations of prices or, or that didn't, I mean, I, I know this happens in other places of the world today, but. Yes. Uh, yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, haggling was went right hand in hand with that kind of personalized interaction, both for peddlers, but also in public markets and also in stores. Um, really the expectation was that um. That uh, the sign of being a savvy shopper was that you would negotiate with the peddler or the grocer or whomever to
0: get the goods, the goods you wanted at a fair price. Right. And what about credit? Um, was that how, or you know, how does that disappear from from our shopping experience? Like, I would not um, dare to to ask for. <laughs> credit today right right right. um right well let
1: me just i'll just say i i that's true for me too but we all we ask for credit all the time we just ask for it from banks right Right? so we we still use credit it's just controlled by a different company um but in the is beginning With the emergence of um, standardized chain stores um, in the 1920s and 19-teens, there was kind of the emergence of a model of, of food shopping that emphasized low price and did away with a lot of the personalized services that had marked food shopping and that had seemed really necessary to it. So... Um, Chain stores tended not to give credit. They also often wouldn't deliver groceries, um, nor could you call in an order and ask for it to be delivered. Um, And they also were more likely to have goods out on shelves, so customers helped themselves and carried the goods to the front, rather than having a clerk serve customers individually as they
0: shopped. That's super interesting. Um, so, how did this change, you know, over time? So, and then I'm interested also in what was the role of uh, of business owners and you know the chain stores uh, in this change? How, you know, how did we change from having lots of options to less options? It's a big, it's a big question.
1: So, one thing I want to say, and that I think really reinforces the The possibility and the instability of food shopping in the 19-teens, 1920s, is that these early chain stores that I described um, often grew, were quite successful in that they opened tons and tons of stores. Um, I can be more specific than tons, hundreds and hundreds, sometimes thousands of stores. Um, But the firms themselves were often financially quite shaky. Because the first, the large national chains in the 1920s took on huge debt to acquire prime locations for their stores. Um, they routinely um, ran afoul of local laws, and in fact, inspired what was called the anti-chain movement, um, largely organized by other by um, independent grocers and independent store operators. Um, and there were some famous flops, some large chains that simply um declared bankruptcy. So it wasn't an obviously successful retail format. Um, that started to change in the 19, roughly in the 1930s, um, when the politics in which stores operated changed such that um, it became more convenient in some ways for the state and in some ways for grocers to have women shoppers who were um, more orderly to have stores that were more orderly and therefore women shoppers who were more orderly. Um, and slowly over time, um, grocery chains began shifting to serve those customers who could be most orderly in stores, um, which is a long way of saying they began trying to trade up to, to reach Um, middle and upper class customers who could most easily accommodate themselves to stores that didn't offer credit where um, one might have to shop in larger quantities and less often. um, And stores that would offer lower prices in some ways and nicer, more aesthetic surroundings, but fewer services.
0: Right. That's, yeah. No, that's super interesting. I wonder. I always wonder about this when studying business: is how how does the business work? So, in in creating this, like hundreds of stores, that takes so much organization. Um, can you tell us perhaps a bit more about you know? Would they would would a group of managers meet and kind of set up? Uh, you know, an agenda of what were the the nicest places or how would they actually l- look for the best place to put a store? It's so interesting. They
1: developed um, basically real estate departments, <laughs> large chain, particularly large regional chains and national chains had, um, you know, As a business historian, you know how managers specialized. So they had people who really sought out what were understood as ideal locations. And those locations um, were widely understood by businesses as desirable for all kinds of reasons, because they were on streetcar corners, because of what people called the class of shoppers and consumers who, who used that space. Um, because of the size of the building or whatever. And those, um, even just leasing a store in those locations could be quite expensive. Um, So so that's one way, right? They had specialized and quite elaborate systems for grading locations and figuring out where stores should be located. I'll just add that those criteria shifted when um, supermarkets came into the mix and, and firms decided they needed large open space rather than densely populated space. Um, but in both cases, location mattered a lot and stores paid a lot, quite a lot for it. The other thing that's interesting, um, I think, to think about in terms of this first wave of chain stores is that they were some were privately owned, but many of them were um, very complicated financial public operations, right? They relied a lot on stock. They relied on kind of and and for that reason, because they relied on stock and um and stock markets, they were sometimes about the spectacle of bigness, right? They had to please shareholders and they had to please the people who advised stock purchasers. And um and partly that kind of reinforced this chase to find the right location and the perfect um look for a store,
0: right. And what about selecting the people that would be in the right. place? Exactly. so there's so many different um, elements you you need to think about, right? <laughs> yeah,
1: it's really interesting. So one thing that the um the that chain stores, hit upon was a, a category, a kind of social identity that they called, um, often they would call it progressive shoppers or um, young wives. They had all different names for it, but what they meant were young people who were um, really young women who were willing to go to stores and carry goods home, who didn't require delivery, who had enough money that they didn't necessarily need store credit, but who were financially constrained enough that they cared a lot about price. So, and they tried to identify locations and marketing techniques that would bring these women to their stores. Exactly.
0: So, what's the um, what is the kind of um, panoramic or context or? Um, the way they look in the interwar, interwar years, what is that? What change do we see right before World War Two?
1: So the landscape of food retail remained pretty unsettled up through the, up through World War II, really. There were um, lots of different ideas about how to find the right customer, lots of different ideas about what this vague category called women actually wanted Um, one of the things I talk about in the book are, um, the emergence of consumer cooperatives, um, which really had, had themselves quite different models, sometimes quite different from what we see now. Um, but they also were, had waves of popularity in this
0: time period. Yeah. Let's Um, talk about, let's talk about that, about those moments of rebellions and, and, um, the cooperatives that you, very well described in the book. And I think those are, those are so interesting.
1: So as consumption came to be uh, an important um, category for policymakers and for economists, um, consumers became a more politically salient category. And it became a more politically salient identity. Um, This is reflected sometimes in, laws that and regulations that we now kind of take for granted like um, try having ingredient labels that are accurate, sort of truth and advertising laws. Um, that's part of a recognition of the political importance of consumers and the responsibility of the state to people's to protect the well-being of um, people who are buying goods. But the other thing that happened is that consumers themselves began organizing, um, both to demand some of those laws that I just mentioned and also to demand authority over the spaces of buying and selling, to demand authority over consumption itself. And consumer co-ops are an example of that. Um, they, The consumer co-ops that are the real foreparents of the co-ops that we have now um, emerged First in England around the turn of the century and then really took off in the United States in the 1930s when there were um, there was just a huge amount of interest in forming co-ops. In fact, um, there were moments in which the federal government seemed to encourage consumers to form their to form co-ops as a way of um, ensuring fair treatment and also fair prices of stores and quality goods.
0: Would you say that this, um, so that these co-ops were in a way uh, non-for-profit <laughs> side of of the retail system and that, I mean, if that's so, uh, what kind of, I mean, if if it's not for profit, then would how did advertisements, you know, and uh, their, their um, network of providers and things like that, play around differently than chain stores?
1: So I wouldn't say that co-ops were not for profit. Um, one of the accommodations that um, governments often made to co-ops was that they could incorporate under different laws than um, with certain privileges that were different from regular incorporation charters, but they were still interested in in making money, right? This, they were not, despite the criticisms, they were not exactly... Non-capitalist. They wanted to generate capital, which could then be um, the the. It was just that what happened with that capital was determined by the people who shopped in the store, by the people who were members of the co-op. Um, so it was a much more dispersed group of people who had authority over what happened with capital and what happened in the store. Um, you could become a member of a co-op, um, usually for they. Most co-ops tried to keep membership fees reasonable for people who lived in that community, although it was a barrier in some areas. Um, and then there were regular meetings at which all the members voted. They were very, um, a, one difference from business was that, um, one different one difference from conventional kinds of business was that every person got one vote regardless of the amount of shares that they purchased or how much money they had. Um, but they all voted on, various aspects of store policy. Should the store expand? Should the store start um, grading the quality of different kinds of foods? Should there be standards for what the store sold? All of those things were determined by members.
0: Right. Yeah. No, that's interesting. um, That's that's a retail forum that um, has never been, I guess, uh, used in my... Uh, environment although I have to say now I mean I have to say I I lived in in South Spain for a while and there was a couple of smaller um, organizations but I would definitely say that they if they were not uh, non-profit they were I mean I don't know so I was just trying to to understand (laughs) how the business side yeah
1: it's um... It's such a distinctive model of retail that it's a little bit illegible for many of us, right? If we're not used to seeing it, um, co-ops themselves often called themselves the third way, um, something that wasn't capitalist and also wasn't socialist. Um, and I should say that they stayed important in, in kind of different regions. So actually Southern Spain is often an example of places where co-ops stayed, um, maintained a presence, um, Scandinavia had and still has a lot of co-ops where I live in Minnesota um, co-ops remained and remain um, quite prominent both as retailers and also as suppliers so some of the um, in fact um, I when I go shopping I typically go to a co-op and there's many in Minneapolis to choose from (laughs) there's also regular regular supermarkets and chain grocery stores. So it really, um, it really was kind of a, uh, they became kind of regionally embedded and they were always more local and more locally embedded than other kinds of retail because they were so tied to, um, to consumers activism, right? To very local communities of, of owners who were shoppers. Um, one of the, the other reason I think that we think of co-ops as so of these co-ops who I'm talking about is different is that um, even later co-ops came to look and act a lot like regular supermarkets. So one of the, um, this process of creating a housewife's paradise um, meant that regardless of the retail structure and the ownership of a store, um, there were increasingly homogeneous visions of what food shopping should look like. And lots of stores followed that vision, regardless of the kind of store that it was. Hmm.
0: No, it's super interesting. And, um, well, and then came the supermarket, right? (laughs) Um, (laughs) so what, what did, how did things change after World War II and why the supermarket kind of? Arose as the you know the main uh, or an important uh, part of the retail system and, and food system. Can you explain how also rationing during the war, which which reminded me so much of of COVID and how you know how we had those lines after yeah. you know all <laughs> in all the, the stores and so yes. how you know how government politics and you know. New ideas, ideals of domesticity, domesticity, changed this retail system uh, towards towards having large supermarkets as the main or very important parts of the system.
1: Okay, so to back to answer that question, I have to back up a little bit. Um, the very first supermarkets um, looked pretty different from the kind that we that emerged after World War II. The first supermarkets were part of this very diverse and divergent food retail landscape in the 1930s. They were- Oh, was they self-service? They had, they often had self-service, okay. but they mm-hmm. were, um, some, some of them were enormous, like really in some ways larger than some of the supermarkets that people shop in now. Um, they were in abandoned car dealerships or large, large commercial spaces. They often looked um, a little bit- Um, disorderly to outsiders because they were so big and because they would often feature um, just huge spectacle, like towering, towering displays of canned goods or in some cases, um, music playing outside to get people to come to the store. They had, um, they often, particularly on the East coast, they had, um, they were called, they were named things like big bear, Um, And they were called kind of disparagingly wild animal stores. And they seemed also to observers like a very shaky financial proposition. I mean, they featured very low prices, but because they cut prices so low, they were not necessarily very robust financially. They didn't necessarily make a profit. Um, during During World War II and then in the years afterwards, large national chain stores that had started to do what I call trading up that had started to seek out, um, very middle and upper class shoppers. Um, they also began adopting a kind of a, I think of it as a tone down supermarket format. So they began opening large self-serve stores, um, often on, not always, but often on the fringes of cities or in suburbs. Um, And those became what we think of as supermarkets. Um, Those kinds of stores and really the impetus for them stemmed from the desire of retailers and grocers, but also increasingly the state to have consumption become a more predictable, orderly process. So rationing and price control were just easier for large stores to impose, partly because they could afford to have staff that would make sure that the store kept up with regulations and was in compliance. It was simply easier to keep up with what, you know, the government was constantly changing what a maximum price could be or what ration coupons were worth. And it was hard in a smaller operation to keep up with those changes. It was more easily to... Be found in violation, but also it was easier to impose those regulations if you weren't depend- if you were not as dependent on just a few shoppers, right? If you had a large customer base, um, you could have you could kind of afford it if a customer were frustrated or angry. Whereas smaller grocers who depended on smaller customer bases had a harder time with that. Um, and also, these were stores that didn't invite customers to resist. Right? They didn't invite personal negotiation. They didn't invite haggling. Um, they, they, you know. So it was just easier in those stores for some kinds of um, some kinds of regulations to be imposed, especially things like rationing and price control.
0: So the the changes then after World War Two. Um, how how did they happen?
1: So after the war, um, for a variety of reasons, these large size supermarkets, the rhetoric and become really important symbols of distinctively American life. They were used by the federal government um, as well as by firms themselves as symbols of what it meant to be. Um, a member of a capitalist, prosperous, democratic United States, um, and they—they, they, for instance, um, the U.S. Commerce Department worked along with foundations and individual retailers to set up model supermarkets um, all through European countries that were socialist or in danger of people were worried would become communist. They set up these model supermarkets to convince local populations of the benefits of capitalism in the United States. Um, That way of shopping, um, that kind of streamlined um, shopping in large stores that were very standardized came to be um, rhetorically and culturally associated with Americanness and the benefits of capitalism. And it also structurally worked better for retailers and policymakers who wanted and really benefited from more standardized, more orderly shopping. They referred to those stores and often described them as satisfying women. So they really kind of um, reinforced that these were a kind of housewife's paradise. And they used the rhetoric of pleasing women as the reason that these stores succeeded and the reason that capitalism was good, that it pleased women.
0: Yeah. No, and it became such a symbol of of American capitalism, right? Uh, supermarkets,
1: yeah, around yeah. the world. Yeah, and lots of his. I'm not, you know, I'm not the only historian to have um, to have figured that out um, and talked <laughs> about it. But it is even now. It is just striking to me the ways that supermarkets really captured um, a cultural space as. Charged symbols of Americanness and American identity so much so that even people who were critical of the United States um, imagined that that these stores were really really did represent what women wanted. Um, so even people on the left um, who were concerned about overconsumption or concerned about um, apolitical Americans turn to supermarkets as the symbols of that. And food shopping as really the icon of the problems with American consumption. I end my book with um, a scene from the first version of the Stepford Wives film, where it ends with, um, well, I don't wanna give it away if your listeners haven't heard it, but let's just say it. the final scene is really, um, epitomizes people's visions, critics' visions of the horrors of apolitical pacified consumption. And they set it in a supermarket.
0: That's wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Uh, this, I love uh, this conversation. And every time we finish, we're wrapping up our conversation, uh, an interview, I ask about the current project. So if you don't mind to tell us, what are you currently working on? Sure. I don't mind at all. Uh,
1: my current project is, um, really embraces my identity as a food historian. I'm working on a book about the politics of gourmet food in the mid-century that uses Julia Child's life. Um, I continue to be interested in the work of food and gender, but I've shifted from stores to people's homes to kind of examine how um, laborious home cooking came to be a mark of wealth, (laughs) came to be a mark of middle and upper class status. Um, and the place of um, of gourmet food really in, um, in American life in the, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. I should say I'm also involved in a public humanities, in a very different project, a public humanities project that uses community collaborations to put the university into racial justice struggles. Um, that's called Minnesota Transform. And we work with community groups to co-create historical narratives and histories and public events that really um, not only raise up and create new knowledge, but also put the university um, into racial justice struggles and in the process kind of reshape how universities function, right? Some basic processes at universities that, however, intentionally have excluded people. Um, and in some ways, I feel like that project takes puts into play some of the lessons I learned from this book, which is that um, institutions matter and these structural policies matter and that structural change, and that they are also quite contingent. That structural change is also possible.
0: Well, good luck. And I want to hear more about your book on, um, on Julia Tell's biography for sure. <laughs> and uh, thank you so much for being with us today. Sure. Thank you very much. And thank you to the listeners of the Economic and Business History Channel. Please follow us and rate us on your podcast platform. Tweet about this interview and others and share it widely. I am Paula de la Cruz Fernandez, and I have been your host today for the book Building a Housewife's Paradise, Gender, Politics and American Grocery Stores in the 20th Century, published in 2000 ten by the University of North Carolina press i hope you keep listening